You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Hello, this is Christopher Robinson joining Dr. Anthony Sisson of the Delaware Center for Maternal Fetal Medicine of Christina Care for a discussion of his original manuscript published in the October issue of the American Journal of Perinatology. The manuscript we will discuss today is entitled The Timing of Adverse Events with Foley Catheter Pre-Induction Cervical Ripening, Implications for Outpatient Use. The authors include Anthony Sisson. Casey Better, Matthew Hoffman, Kelly Russaller, and Philip Schlossman. I want to thank Dr. Sisson for taking time out today to speak with us concerning his research and the implications for better patient care. The authors sought to determine the rate and timing of adverse events that occur during pre-induction cervical ripening using a Foley catheter. Specifically, they sought to examine adverse events occurring during induction and prior to extrusion of the Foley balloon, but before the institution of oxytocin. Patients who were included in this study presented for pre-induction cervical ripening between 2006 and 2009. Each patient had a term singleton vertex live fetus and was considered uncomplicated at the time of presentation. A total of 1,905 inductions utilizing a Foley catheter met inclusion criteria. Examining the use of pre-induction cervical Foley catheter ripening in this cohort, there were no adverse outcomes noted amongst the inductions. The authors suggest that this mode of induction of labor may provide a safe mechanism for cervical ripening in the outpatient setting among women who present with a low-risk pregnancy for induction of labor. Dr. Sisson, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule today to spend some time with us discussing your recent manuscript in the American Journal of Perinatology. I wanted to start out by asking you, what gave you this idea? What was your approach in coming up with this decision to pursue examination of these patients who do undergo Foley catheter pre-induction cervical ripening? So first, I want to thank you for including me in doing this. It's uh, quite an honor to be interviewed for the American Journal of Perinatology, so thank you very much. The idea for outpatient cervical ripening came from a paper that I had done before I want to say five, six years ago, maybe longer, we came up with the idea that we felt that the Foley catheter had very few side effects in the inpatient arena, which we were using it a lot. We were running about, I don't know, somewhere between a 20 and 30% induction rate. We have about 7,000 deliveries a year, so we had a lot of ladies that we were seeing, and we just noticed it just seemed to work really effectively and have very little issues. So the first thing we wanted to do was prove that it could be managed by women on their own. So what I mean is, is that in the inpatient setting, the Foley is usually checked by the nurse to make sure that it's still taut, that it's in. We commonly tape it to the inside of the thigh to keep tension on it. So we weren't sure that women actually could do it. And we also wanted to find out what their experience was if they went home, if they were anxious or they had other issues or maybe a lot of them returned. So we did a randomized trial where half the women were placed into 
inside the hospital and followed, and half were just sent home. This was a low-risk population that had no contraindication for vaginal delivery, of course. No IUGR. They all had a non-stress test that was reactive and had an amniotic fluid assessment that was normal. And after all that was done, they were kept on the monitor for a half an hour, an hour after placing the Foley catheter to make sure there was no problems. And after an hour, they were fine. They were randomized. And what we found out was actually great, which is women can manage it on their own as an outpatient. The rate of return to the hospital with issues was about 8%. Most of the time, it was because of cramping or bleeding. There were no women that had rupture of membranes from being at home. Women were instructed that if the Foley catheter came out, they were given a biohazard bag. They were asked to put it in the biohazard bag return to the hospital at 6 in the morning where a bed would be waiting for them. And regardless if the Foley catheter had come out or not, the tosin was started and the induction was begun. What we found is, is that the vaginal delivery rate was no different, the outcomes were no different, and the best part was that in our survey of women, they almost all, 90 plus percent, preferred being at home with their family and were not anxious about it and actually loved the experience. So that prompted us to take the next step, which was whether what really is the risk of having the Foley catheter using this paradigm. So in other words, in that initial part where the mom, before the mom would have been sent home, what's the chance of something happening? And then after that period, from say after three or four hours they were in, they met all the criteria, and then they could go home until they returned at six in the morning what were the chances something would happen in that period? And that's really what prompted this study. I want to ask another theoretical question. Since we did see such a low risk of adverse events, and these patients are certainly suggesting that they have a high satisfaction with the opportunity to undergo their pre-induction cervical ripening at home, and I think that is certainly something that we all see in our specialty. Patients would prefer to be at home rather than to have a very prolonged induction in the hospital. But is it also possible that the lack of medical intervention in these pregnancies as a result of them being at home, could this possibly improve our cesarean rates amongst patients undergoing induction with an unfavorable cervix? This is a great question, and I believe that it will decrease the number of cesareans because what we've learned is, is the more women are in the hospital, or the longer, the more likely they are to have interventions. And if they're at home with their family or whoever, there's obviously going to be less chances for any intervention. So I do believe that cesarean delivery rate will decrease when this is applied to a large population. Now, in this study, there were two women who did undergo a cesarean delivery after their Foley catheter was placed, but before completing the two hours of fetal monitoring. In those cases, can you tell us a little bit about what do you think led to this result in the early monitoring phase? Because you did have a two-hour fetal monitoring phase that was examined in all of these pregnancies. Right. So the two-hour phase, if this was applied, and I should be clear, in this population, they were actually all inpatient. So we did a retrospective look at these folks to see if they had been enrolled, and these are all low-risk people, if they had been enrolled in an outpatient cervical ripening program, they would have had two hours of the monitoring before they were discharged. So we wanted to see what would happen in that particular two-hour epoch. 
And what we found is there was two deliveries in that epic. Both the babies did well. Both of them were for, I think one was for vaginal bleeding, the other was for fetal heart rate abnormality, and both babies did great. So those are folks that would have never gone home. I want to be clear about that. So they would have been caught in that early two-hour period. The patients in this evaluation, this was a cohort, as you say, all of these patients were in the hospital, and this is really examining the timing of these outcomes. I noticed that one of the times that's not reported here is we had a, approximately a 94% epidural use amongst the patients who were undergoing induction that were examined in this study. Do you have any information as far as how early were epidurals requested? Do you think that there was a higher rate of early epidural placement as a result, or were some of the epidurals placed even prior to placement of the Foley catheter in these women? Yeah, in our hospital, most of the epidurals would have been placed after the Foley either had been in for six, eight hours, or the Foley had come out and they began labor. And in these patients, I also noticed when we look at the indications for induction, certainly there were some with growth restriction, there were some with gestational diabetes or chronic hypertension. If we were to propose this as an outpatient protocol, what would be your restrictions? What are the things that you would potentially see as being the restrictions as far as the indications for those inductions? So it should be, and I need to emphasize this, it should be a low-risk cohort. So in other words, folks that aren't likely to have intrapartum or pre-induction cervical ripening problems. So one I wouldn't include would be folks with preeclampsia, of course, people with other medical issues that you would think are going to need attention while they're in labor and delivery or in if you have a suite that they're not in labor and delivery getting the ripening. Depending on the amount of IUGR, I may not include them. Folks that have well-controlled diabetes, Certainly, A1 gestational diabetics would be candidates. Folks that have well-controlled hypertension that you do not think will need meds and labor were folks that could be done as an outpatient as well. Certainly, and I think leading into this, you proposed even an outpatient protocol as table four of this specific manuscript, and right. it lays out specifically a, a way in which you would approach this. Would you take us through that and discuss that a bit? What it basically parallels is our original article and how those women were managed. So you would identify someone, the proper risk group. Let's say a really good one is post-stage. So you identify someone in that risk group, a low-risk group. Let's say they have post-stage, and you offer them pre-induction cervical ripening as an outpatient. If they consent, then what we would do is we would bring them in in the afternoon, early evening of some mutually convenient day. They would have the monitor put on. They would have an assessment of their amniotic fluid. If the amniotic fluid was normal, the NST was reactive, the Foley would be placed, they'd be kept on for another hour. If the NST looked normal and they weren't uncomfortable, no rupture of membranes, and I have to be honest, in our hands, the rate of rupture of membranes with Foley catheter placement is very low, then they could be sent home. Obviously, if they don't meet any of those criteria, then they would be sent to labor and delivery. They would go home. They would be given an instruction to when to return. We would give them a biohazard bag. If the Foley comes out, we do not think that's an indication to come back. We ask them to put it in the biohazard bag. 
and not let anybody else touch it with them, and then bring it back and we'll dispose it the next morning. We would ask them to show up at 6 in the morning, whether the Foley catheter is out or not. In our hands, we would start the tocin when they arrive, and then they would have our normal induction protocol. The reason we pick to have them come in the day before between 3 and 8 o'clock at night is we know through extensive experience that if you do it at that time period, the most likely time for a vaginal delivery will be before midnight the next day. And we've shown that in some of the other studies we did, and I want to say that was 90% of folks delivered before midnight on the following day. We've discussed patient satisfaction briefly. We've discussed you know, the possibility this could lead to improved outcomes, and I think this leads in nicely to a discussion of what do you think of, especially given that clearly you have reduced the inpatient hospital utilization by allowing patients potentially in the future, I'm suggesting that hopefully you are going to follow this up with a future study looking at this, but we would limit the amount of hours the patient would be more satisfied. But what about the cost savings? I mean, what do you see as far as the potential of this also impacting the total cost of care? You know, obviously in a capitated system, it wouldn't affect it, but in a non-capitated system, it certain, I mean to the payers, it would definitely reduce costs because if you're in the hospital, it costs money. There's no way around it, whether it's nursing time, room time, whatever. If you're at home, it's going to reduce the cost. And the good part is, is that when you come in, it's just like you're an inpatient anyway, and we know that the likelihood of you delivering vaginally is just as high as if you were sitting in the hospital. So it's really, in my opinion, a win-win-win. Absolutely. I can totally see the same from the standpoint it is often hard in our specialty and in obstetrics as a whole to be able to marry the concepts of patient satisfaction and cost savings at the same time. We always deal with are we able to achieve both? And it seems like this proposal would potentially lead to both of those outcomes being improved, as well as what I would also be interested in is the lack of intervention and whether that leads to actual improved outcomes in these pregnancies as well. And I would just add, this is really a triple win-win-win. And the other folks that really like this is the providers, because delivering before midnight is perceived as a positive. For the family as well, you know, delivering at 3 in the morning, although it's exciting, you're tired. Um, Absolutely. For the, for the obstetricians, nurse, midwife, whoever's managing the labor, it's preferential, at least in our institution, it's preferential for a patient to deliver before midnight. And there are studies out there that actually look at the cost of patients laboring during the night versus patients laboring during the daytime. And there are differences in staffing, differences of cost in handling staffing and cost per patient as well. So I can certainly see that does make a lot of sense. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk with us, and we look forward to seeing future work in this area. Thank you for inviting me. Again, it was a privilege speaking with you. Thank you very much. Take care. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, 
Please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.